is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Seth. And I'm Maya, and today we are thrilled to have Catherine Forrest with us. She's a lawyer, a former U.S. District Judge for the Southern District of New York, and a technology writer. In her, in her writing, she explores complex issues and urges a national conversation on artificial intelligence, justice, and liberty. Thank you, Ms. Forrest, for being with us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We like to ask our guests about an inflection point a place in where they had to pivot or adjust in their personal or professional lives. Will you please share a moment with us? Sure. Uh, there's actually a couple of them, so I'll pick out one that will lead into the technology focus of my talk this evening, which is how I came as a non-technology person to actually be involved in issues relating to the digital environment and ultimately evolving into AI. So when I first became a um, partner at a law firm, uh, I wanted to find a way not to just do what every other lawyer did so that I had to be one of a million lawyers who did securities cases or one of a million lawyers who did things with commercial paper. And I wanted something that was sort of special and unique and uh, build some independence for myself and something that was really interesting. So believe it or not, there was a day before the internet actually existed. Mm -hmm. And that day was just about the day that I became a partner. And so I had my very first summer intern pull every decision that existed at that point in time about the internet. When I say decision, I mean judicial decision, a decision from a court. And they all fit into two binders that weren't that big. That's how few there were at the time. And I ended up becoming, from that, a specialist, believe it or not, in the uh, law and the internet and sort of in digital, all, all things digital with the law. And I became a lawyer who ended up uh, then segueing into a lot of the early music copyright cases, sort of the I was the lead lawyer on the LimeWire case when all the record companies sued to shut down LimeWire. I represented the major record companies. Uh, I did the mp3.com case, the mp3 board case. And so I had this sort of push into the digital environment from that moment of thinking, how do I achieve independence? How do I do something that others aren't all over already? And I didn't come to it with a technology background. I came to it with a curiosity and with a love of, and that for that, a, a love of intellectual property in that area of the law. And I ended up developing this specialty that then eventually led me uh, into the AI, the artificial intelligence area. So that's sort of the first, uh, the first uh, pivotal moment. Uh by making this decision to direct your career by finding a niche, did you worry that once you became a specialist in that area, you would discover that it wasn't actually something that interested you? You know, it wasn't so much a lack of interest as much as uh, that I wouldn't be sought after enough by clients that I would, because I knew I, I, knew I was very interested in this. Mm -hmm. um, I uh, very quickly realized that the conversion into the digital environment was what the world was heading towards and it was sort of everything uh, in terms of how content was delivered. A lot of my clients were media clients, a lot of record companies, uh, movie companies were already my clients and so this was another way of bringing them uh, a service. But I was concerned that since I wasn't a technology person, people, I'd go to meetings and people would speak mumbo jumbo about technology to me and I'd be like, mm. Well, this sounds like this is plain old copyright infringement. It doesn't sound like the compression of the digital file is really the issue. It sounds like it's copying a musical file, and that's copyright infringement. And uh, so that was my concern. My concern is that I was entering an area that was so highly specialized that I would somehow not be able to break into it fully. And I, what I learned is that you needed a translator, that there's a whole area of law that's made for people who aren't the text specialists, but they understand how to convert 
the tech specialist language into language that you and I can understand. How does the legal system judge cases where technology might outpace the law? That's, it's tough, right? Because every judge is different and every judge comes to the bench, to their job, with a different set of skills, different ages. And so there are judges literally today who I worked with who do a phenomenal job at looking at issues relating to emerging technology who themselves don't really use still to this day email. Mm -hmm. And they have secretaries who print out their emails. And there are other judges where they have run a completely paperless chambers. Everything is digital. And so you've got the entire spectrum of judges sitting on, in this, on the same bench, so to speak. For me, it was the Southern District of New York. And the cases are assigned randomly. So it's not as if some major new technology case can be rolled, will only be rolled out to somebody who happens to be a particularly savvy uh, tech person. It can be rolled out to anyone. So the way you approach it in terms of whether it's technology or an area of commodities exchange that you're not particularly familiar with is by having the parties to the case educate you. So what I would do is I would say to the parties, come in and tell me how this works. And you do that in open court and you do it through having the parties bring in uh, their expert witnesses and essentially teach you something. They can do that sometimes through written submissions, through expert reports, but they can also do it, and I'd had it done uh, in a couple of different cases uh, through live, just live testimony, tutorials that weren't really tutorials in the name of a trial. It was really at the beginning of a case to teach me about the case so that I could understand the issues. Because by, by understanding the issues, you're then able to anticipate when there's this kind of dispute earlier in a case, what's relevant, what's not relevant. Uh, and if you don't know what the facts are, you can't really determine relevance. So, uh, so it's not an easy task, uh, but it's a task that is a, we're familiar as judges with breaking our way through, or I was familiar when I was a judge of breaking my way through it. Uh, transitioning to get a little bit more specific on some of your more recent work in this area, uh, I'm, I'm curious uh, about your thoughts on AI as a, a witness and, and to the extent to which it, they should be treated um, like humans. In a series of articles for the New York Law Journal that you wrote last year, uh, you discussed the ways in which AI can exercise judgment and therefore may need to be considered in a similar light to human witnesses. But what worries me is that in addition to having the ability to make judgments the way that a human would, AI are also, I would imagine, a form of intellectual property. So, so when AI are to be used as witnesses, how can you cross-examine an AI that's also a form of intellectual property? Well, uh, there's a lot of good questions in there. And one is just, I think, the, tech, the sort of the question as to how AI becomes a witness to begin with and how that can even happen, and the extent to which once it happens, uh, whatever that testimony is happens to be also intellectual property. So I'd back up a little bit and say that in terms of how AI works, it works to go beyond what the humans teach it. So the intellectual property is the base of the AI. It's going to be the algorithm that's underlying the AI. And so the AI, if it was just high-tech software and could just speak back to you and answer certain questions but go no further than you had taught it, everything in my view would be owned by whoever uh, original, originated that intellectual property, would be owned by whoever developed the computer software um, and developed the answers to the questions that the AI would then be, non-AI, uh, just the high-tech software would be answering. What AI does that's different is it takes the underlying algorithm and it learns 
answers to a series of questions, but then is able to go beyond that. It's able to extrapolate from what it's already learned to something beyond. So in the situation where AI might be a witness, part of what would, is going to be very interesting uh, is that AI is going to go beyond where what it's been taught today uh, would otherwise place it. And what that means is it's not clear who owns that. Is it the person who anticipates that as the human designer of, uh, of that underlying AI software? Do they, are they the agent and the owner of everything that flows from it? Because a lot of what flows from it is going to be unanticipated. So does the designer get the unanticipated consequences of that testimony? The answer may be yes, or the answer may be no. It stops at a certain point once the human is no longer able to say, I take responsibility for that answer. And by the way, the humans may not want to take responsibility for certain answers. They may get to a point where they say, uh, my intellectual property ended at the point where I was able to understand what my AI was actually going to do with uh, this uh, position, this statement, this question, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the other interesting piece of, what you've, of, of that question is, in what respect will AI ever be a witness? And one of the ways that AI will end up being a witness is, for instance, you're at home, you're talking to your Google Home or your Siri, and you're never expecting it to actually have anything to say about what you're saying. You have an absolute anticipation that what you're saying is private, totally private. You're in your home. And in fact, some would say AI is listening to you, uh, that Siri is listening to you. It's listening for keywords. Some, there's a big debate about whether it listens for 30 seconds and erases it or doesn't listen at all, but somehow magically hears the keywords. Uh, but there's no doubt that it's listening in some regard. Once it's listening to you, uh, over time it's going to be able to respond to others who query it about what it heard. And so it will be able to be a witness to what you said in an unanticipated way. Would you call Siri into the courtroom today? No, it's too early. But will you call Siri into the courtroom potentially in five years? Yes, or seven years. Yes, I think it's that close. Uh, so it's the, it's the unanticipated um, that we're going to be seeing with AI as a witness. It's pretty clear that AI will be able to provide prosecutors with uh, significant benefits in terms of their ability to uh, convict criminals. But do you think that uh, there is a point where it infringes on people's privacy too much so that that uh, outweighs the potential benefit to public safety? So there, there's, there's a very, very big debate about AI and privacy because AI, of course, learns through data sets and data sets collect information about human beings or things or events. And a lot of that information's information that people don't anticipate will ever become public. So there are those who say, look, the public safety aspects of the invasion of privacy are worth it because we're going to end up protecting ourselves so much better than we ever anticipated we'd be able to protect ourselves. And there are others who say, my goodness, this scares me because what's going to happen is we're going to have huge infringements on our ability to keep anything secret. We're going to be watched everywhere. We're going to, our movements are going to be predicted everywhere. And so I actually don't have a firm view because it's evolving all the time. There's something in New York City uh, that I just was uh, talking to some folks about not too long ago called DAS, D-A-S, the Domain Awareness System. And DAS is a very sophisticated, elaborate AI system that does a lot of predictions about human movements all over New York City. So there are, uh, right now, there are uh, 
cameras on every in, on every bridge and in, in every tunnel in Manhattan, so you can watch every single car go in and out. Every every uh, single license plate is identified, and people who have consistent patterns, their movements are detected and predicted. So because there are also cameras within the infrastructure of New York City, so within New York City today, in a way that is not really well understood by most citizens, there's the ability to watch you to predict where you are and where you're going every single day. And so if they decided that with your license plate, they randomly wanted to find out where you are, they could essentially, if you have a regular pattern of movement, go back through, they don't have to do it with human beings, they do it with an algorithm, find out where you appear and predict your movements. Some people would find that very unsettling, some people wouldn't care. So I'm sort of right now just watching. Since a lot of people are concerned with the ethics of AI, um, as AI becomes increasingly integrated into the legal system, how should we uphold our core legal values? I think that the main issue has to be that we've got to be talking about this because most people right now today don't anticipate that AI actually has any um, uh, embedded uh, ethics in its uh, algorithms or in, or in the answers that it's given. Most people think that AI just gives somehow correct or truthful answers, and they're not really considering uh, the ways in which AI is giving answers that are in fact based on value systems and on uh, ethical frameworks. And so what we've got to do more than anything else is understand that this is happening, that it's that AI is embedding and is learning from embedded ethical frameworks and value systems within the data sets that it's learning from. And then we've got to think very carefully about how we the design how we design the algorithms that AI will use to learn. And so uh, that's the main way. It's being aware of it and it's having a conversation about it. The next step, of course, would be deciding whether or not we want to teach a single framework of ethics to AI. I think that's going to be a very difficult thing to arrive at. I mean, who, how can we ever agree as a country that there is one single framework of ethics? Uh, we, we can't agree on a lot of things. We might agree that certain things are right and wrong, but to come up with an entire ethical framework that we agree as a society, we should have AI learn about and learn from and then act upon, I think that's going to be much more difficult. So understanding that it exists is the first thing that we should be doing. So do you ever, in, do you envision a day in which AI will be truly unbiased? Unbiased. I think that uh, if I had to answer that as sort of a yes or no, do I ever envision truly a day, the answer would be no. I think that bias is uh, sort of, number one, whether it could be good bias, it could be bad bias, but I think that AI is not objective. And so inherently there is bias within some AI, right? So you look at, for instance, uh, AI is made up of algorithms, and that's, I'll talk about that tonight, inputs and weightings of inputs. How those inputs get chosen, a lot of that's done by AI. Some of it can be done by humans. Weightings, a lot of that's done by AI, but that can be adjusted by humans. Every time you put in an input or adjust a weighting, it ends up being something that uh, reflects the human designer's view of life what's important, what's not important, why. So uh, I think that it's going to be very hard to have an unbiased uh, AI if that means it won't reflect uh, a human design. It'll always reflect the human design and what the human brings to the table when they do the design. Do you think that uh, if we know that a particular AI or even just simply a, a, a model, not, not necessarily an AI, is biased, do you think that should prohibit its use? I'm I immediately think of facial recognition softwares and how they've been shown to have much higher false positive rates for people of color. But 
if their use still increases public safety, then then it, how do we strike the balance between those two things? Well, I think it's we have to improve the AI. We're not going to avoid, for instance, the utilization of facial recognition technology or the utilization of technology for self-driving cars uh, that actually today do have all kinds of issues, uh, many of which uh, remain highly controversial and some would put into the category of bias. So the answer is not that we're going to ever avoid it. What we're going to do is improve on it. And in order to improve on it, we've got to improve on the way that we actually train the AI. A lot of it's through different kinds of training sets and exposing AI to enough different situations and enough variation that they're able to differentiate. So uh, this is a solvable problem, and it's one that people are all over today. There's a lot of work being done today on fixing that kind of bias. There are other kinds of bias that are far more difficult in terms of things like uh, software to predict violence and recidivism where there are lots of different kinds of inputs for AI and some of them can be things like race. And do you eliminate race for predicting recidivism? A lot of people would say yes. Well then you also need to eliminate maybe zip codes because a zip code could become a proxy for a race-based uh, input. And so it goes on and on. So there's going to be some more difficulties I think in some other areas. Facial recognition I think will solve uh, faster than some of the other ones. So, um, hard shifting a little bit, um, when did you realize that you wanted to pursue a career in law? When did I? Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. I um, originally thought that I was going to be a professor and thought that I would just do the law degree alongside of what at the time was a history PhD, which I didn't finish. I got pretty far along, but I was doing them simultaneously and got sort of absorbed into the legal side. Um, I thought I'd do them both, and I thought that the legal, uh, the law degree would actually uh, enhance my PhD and make me a better professor. Uh, I ended up working for a law firm, the same law firm I'm at now actually, with a little uh, 10 years in government service sort of in between, and I ended up finding it fascinating. So the thing about law that I found fascinating is that everything is a story. Even huge commercial cases, and I've worked on some huge commercial cases, everything has got human beings behind it, they have storylines, they have narratives, and it's all, to me, interesting. When I did the United Airlines-Continental Airlines merger, I was the lead lawyer for United Airlines on the competition review just before I went into government service. Uh, that, learning about the airline industry and learning how all of that works, it's incredibly complicated. The economics are very interesting. I find it fascinating. So I ended up getting into the law because of a summer job. And sort of sideways, I thought I'd just make money. I thought, oh, everybody else is making money. I'll make money too. And it turned out that I saw through that summer job something I never anticipated seeing. Uh, now that you've worked on both sides of the bench, making the transition to uh, working as a judge and, and now back again, what, what, uh, what difficulties did, did you find uh, having to now make be the, the ultimate authority to decide uh, the sorts of punishments that the defendants were facing? Uh, you mean being, uh, now that I'm in private practice, do I look back on what I did on, on the bench and think about those issues, or did I think about them then and continue to think about them now? Uh, I guess more specifically, upon making that transition to becoming a judge, what sorts of difficulties did you face? Did you find it hard to go from simply making an argument in favor of a defendant or against a defendant to finally actually having the ultimate authority for 
yeah. that person's well, outcome. It, you know, it, it raises an interesting point, which is I went on to the bench and didn't have any criminal experience at all. I mean, I had overseen 600 lawyers in the uh, criminal and civil operations of the antitrust division of the United States Department of Justice, but I didn't have any prosecutorial experience in any real way. So when I became a judge, I was making liberty decisions, very serious, the most serious kinds of liberty decisions you can make about another human being, and I had no experience doing it. So what I did was I embarked upon a personal training program where I used to read vast quantities of sentencing transcripts from other judges. I would have a, a summer intern every year pull sentencing transcripts from other judges and talk to other judges about how they sentenced. I also, for a couple of very significant sentences that I did, uh, would talk to other judges beforehand. I'd pick five or six of the most experienced, most respected judges in, the, in my uh, area, my district, and I would ask them, uh, here's, here's my proposed sentence. What do you think about it? and would listen to their feedback because I wanted to ensure that I wasn't in a, I wasn't sentencing an individual in a way that was going to be unfair and out of the norm of what others would do. Uh, so it was an incredibly uh, humbling experience uh, to go from being not on the bench to having the kind of power over liberty decisions that a district judge has. Are there any cases or ideas that you wish to revisit now that you're off the bench, whether it be because of new information or different circumstances? I think that um, one thing that I tried to do was when I would make a decision, I would try to make the best decision I could at the time and then really uh, almost put it to rest, which is uh, you get reversed sometimes as a judge and you have to be prepared to be reversed. You get three judges sitting on the Court of Appeals who look at your decision, they look at it hard and they may decide one or all three of them, or at least two out of the three have to decide to reverse you to get the vote for reversal. And you respect that and you're prepared for that. You, I, don't, I didn't sec, do a lot of second guessing of my decisions after the fact. You do so many, you do thousands, that you could just drive yourself crazy. So uh, there are certainly some very controversial decisions that I did uh, that I still uh, get a lot of feedback about even today. Um, but uh, they are decisions that I am comfortable having made when I have to be, when I talk about them or I'm asked about them. Uh, they're decisions that I then, of course, do think about and wonder, uh, did I make the right decision? And I go through the reasons again in my mind, and I am comfortable. Um, so there's nothing that I would sit here today and say, oh, I regret that decision. Uh, I remember sort of uh, taking a lawyer to task in a civil case once about putting too many ad hominem comments in a brief, and I think I could have been a little nicer when I <laughs> told them to cut down the purple prose. Uh, but that's about the only thing right now that I can think of. We're almost out of time for this interview. So I'd like to know, for students who are considering potentially pursuing a career in law, uh, what would you recommend to, to them to help figure out whether this is a good career for them? I think that uh, what I would recommend that they do is go into a courthouse. If, well, it depends if they want to be a litigator, uh, in which it's going to be courtroom work, or if they want to go into the corporate side. But if they want to be a litigator, my advice to them is the courthouses in this country are open. They are open to be walked into. Do not be afraid. Find out what's happening. They're usually in the front of, of certainly the federal courthouses, uh, will be a list of what's happening that day. I would find an interesting trial during the summertime and go over, you know, sort of in the morning or in the afternoon. You can walk in, you can walk out. You don't have to feel like you've got to be there all day long. Go and watch, because I think you'll find it very, very interesting. And frankly, some of the law shows on TV, some of them are just, uh, they're all made up, it's all fake, and some of them are a little, a little true. Um, 
the, law is a story. You know, every case has its own story, its own narrative, and keep your mind open to that. And go in and watch these cases in courthouses and uh, listen to the stories and see if it interests you. And if it does, then I think it's a, a career worth pursuing. I think law school in and of itself, some people love it, some people don't love it. I didn't love law school. I loved and do love being a lawyer. Uh, so you don't have to love law school in order to love law. And uh, what you have to do is you've got to actually like stories. Um, otherwise, it'll just drive you crazy. So the final question that we ask to each one of our guests is, what is your definition of su success? Well, my definition of success for me personally is that my children end up happy in life and that uh, I end up when I'm 85 years old and I'm looking back on things, thinking more about my children than anything else. But my, that's my personal definition of success. My definition of career success is I keep myself as happy as I can along the way, which means being interested in what I'm doing and engaged in what I'm doing. Um, it's not about money. It's about uh, just the personal absorption in the material. But I'll tell you one thing, I never want to end up having uh, that kind of career success outweigh my ability to be with family, with friends, with my children. That's all the time we have. Thank you for speaking with us today. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.